Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. Arendt was a 20th century German-Jewish political theorist who thought boldly and provocatively about our shared political and ethical world. She was born in Germany in 1906, fled the Nazi regime in 1933, and came to the United States in 1941. She lived in New York until she passed away in 1975. Arendt published numerous books, and in this podcast, we will read them with you. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College and authored many books, most recently The Pearls of Invention, Lying, Technology and the Human Condition. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for political thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Every Friday, Roger Berkowitz hosts a virtual reading group for all of our members. Together, we have been reading Arendt since 2014. This podcast is based on what we are reading in our reading group. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. It is Arendt's major work in which she analyzes Nazism and Stalinism as the main totalitarian political movements of the first half of the 20th century. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. And now I hand it over to Roger, who is going to read and analyze the next chapter for us. Hi, Roger. Hi, Jana. It's great to be here. Great to be with you. Today we are starting with our new book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and we are reading the preface to the first edition and also the three prefaces to the three parts titled Anti-Semitism, Imperialism, and Totalitarianism. And in the one of the prefaces to part one, Arendt writes, the book is an attempt at understanding what at first and even second glance appeared simply outrageous. And I was hoping if you could explain a little bit to our listeners that may not be as familiar with Arendt, what understanding means to Arendt and her thinking and talk a little bit about what that also means for the book and working through the materials in order to understand. Thanks, Jana. I mean, first of all, you have to understand that Hannah Arendt was Jewish. She was born in 1906 in, in Germany. She was put in prison. She was working uh, for the Zionists at the time, even though she wasn't a, a convinced Zionist in any way. And she had she was then exiled, uh, went to Paris as a stateless refugee, and then to the United States. Her whole life was upended by by Nazism. The book is is about totalitarianism, both Nazism and Bolshevism. But these are raw topics for her. These are not things that she can just speak about without any emotion and 
Um, even though she's known at times for someone as someone who speaks with a distance, you know, this, uh, there's a real uh, rawness uh, to much of this book. What does it mean to understand or comprehend uh, what happened, right? I mean, can't you just say these were anti-Semites who wanted to get rid of all the Jews and leave it at that? Why do you have to go deeper? And her view is that that kind of emotional uh, response to say, you know, it's just racism, it's just anti-Semitism can be satisfying. And yet it doesn't help us understand what happened. And the only way to resist what happened from happening again is to understand it in a way that you can change the way we act so that we can respond to it in ways to prevent it from happening again, or at least seek to prevent it from happening again. And so she says that understanding is the, and comprehending and understanding are the unpremeditated, attentive, facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. And that attempt to just look at reality in the face, anti-Semitism, racism, the genocide, the Holocaust, and look at it honestly and try and make sense of it, understand it, and then also face up to it as something that happened for a reason, not because of just some crazy people, but there's a reason it happened. And then how do you resist it? And that's what the book's about. And that's why this is such an important book, because the reason for these things aren't going away. The kind of feeling of loneliness, homelessness, rootlessness, the kind of angst and feeling of unsettledness that's so common in the modern world is the soil in which totalitarianism can grow. And so the book is about facing that head on, trying to understand it, and trying to think it through in ways that uh, will allow us to resist it. That is the perfect transition to my next question. I was actually, I wanted to bring up our conference, Friendship and Politics, that is going to take place in October here at Bard College. You can also attend virtually. But because the book has become popular again in these past years, I was wondering how it is connected to the topic of friendship, if you can speak a little bit to that mass loneliness, being uprooted and all of these topics. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the conditions that made the world ripe for totalitarianism were this kind of metaphysical homelessness and loneliness, this feeling that we don't have meaning and humans need meaning. That's one of the fundamental, uh, you know, if, if, if you want to think about what does it mean to be human, we desperately want to think that our lives are valuable. Um, we suffer a lot, you know, we suffer sickness, we suffer loss of family or kids or friends. If we're going to get through that, we have to think it's for a purpose. And, you know, at times, gods, religions, traditions, families, a sense of place have given us meaning. And in this modern world of, there's a real feeling that, well, what is it all for? We don't believe in a lot of these things. What what makes it worthwhile? And one answer is, well, we're actually part of a master race uh, or we're part of a, a master class, the proletariat, and we're going to inherit the world. And therefore, um, we can kill those people who stand on our way. And it's what makes the world meaningful. And that's the totalitarian um, response. And she's like, look, it's a response that answers a modern need and you have to take it seriously. But another response um, might be a political response, a political response in which 
amidst our plurality and our differences, we try and find not only where we disagree, but also where we agree and we come together. And that's what she means by friendship as a politics. Friendship in which we learn to respect other people, even if we fundamentally disagree with them. And they respect us, even if they fundamentally disagree with us. And we find what we share and what we can respect in each other. And that baseline of learning to trust and live with a friend amidst your differences is what is both personal friendship, but also is the foundation for a politics of friendship that Arendt imagines. And that's what we're going to be exploring, both those sides of friendship in the conference. Right. Taking place October 12th and 13th here at Bard College, but you can also attend virtually. Thank you, Roger. And we're now listening to the four prefaces to Origins. Thank you very much, Jana. It's a pleasure. All right, we're going to begin. Welcome, everybody. So my name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College and thrilled to be with you today for the virtual reading group on Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. As many of you know, uh, this book was originally published in 1950, and it was originally published under the title The Burden of Our Times, which was the title it had in the UK when it was published. And then it was published in its first edition in 1951 in the United States under the title, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Arendt rewrote it quite extensively uh, for the German edition, which she then wrote and translated into German, and then added much of those changes back into the English edition, including replacing the short conclusion with a longer epilogue on ideology and terror in the second edition. And so we're using basically uh, the text from the second edition forward is pretty standard. I'm using the Harvest or uh, Harcourt edition. Page numbers that I give uh, will be based on, on that edition in case you are hoping to read it and follow along. In any case, this was the first book Arendt published, uh, her second book in a way, because her first book was the Rahel Von Hagen book. But it's a book she worked on starting all the way, actually, when she was in, in France uh, as a refugee and then came to the United States and, and worked on it strongly from the end of the war in 1945 until its publication in 1950-51. It's considered by many people to be one of the greatest books of the 20th century. It's on all those great books of the 20th century list. And it's a book that is difficult, long, and yet absolutely essential and brilliant. And so I'm very much looking forward to reading it with you. So just at the beginning, let me just try and say one or two paragraphs or sentences about why this book matters and, and, and why it's important, because we're going to spend a long time together reading it, basically chapter by chapter. Today, we, we read um, the four prefaces, the original 1950 preface, and then the three prefaces that she wrote in 1967 to a new edition of the, of the book. So almost, almost 20 years later. And those bear the, the markings of the times in which they're written, and we'll, we'll talk about them. But overall, um, in this book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt seeks to answer a very simple question. 
which is what is totalitarianism. And she does so by looking at two versions of mid-20th century totalitarianism. She thinks they're the two first versions uh, of totalitarianism that have ever existed, Nazism in Germany and Bolshevism in the Soviet Union. Uh, part of her thesis is that there had never been totalitarianism before these two governments emerged in the 1920s and 1930s. She understood totalitarianism in a very, well, I was going to say very specific way, but it's, it's, it's complicated. But what I want to mean by that is that if there's one definition that we can have of what she means by totalitarianism, it is the total, and that's the word total, totalitarian, the total evisceration of human freedom. There had been many kinds of governments in the past, right? There'd been democracies, oligarchies, aristocracies, tyrannies, authoritarian governments, monarchies. But even in a tyranny or a monarchy, there's freedom. There's freedom in the private realm, right? The monarch or the tyrant basically wants to control what you do in public. Totalitarianism is different. It seeks the total evisceration of human freedom. And it seeks that not only in a particular state or nation, but on a global level, because it has to constantly grow and move out and expand. And so totalitarian rules, she says, aims for the total domination of the population of the earth, the elimination of every competing non-totalitarian reality. The ambition of totalitarianism is enormous. It wants to take over the whole earth and eviscerate all spontaneity, all freedom. Since one person who can think and change their mind and say, you know what, this totalitarian reality is not real. One person can pierce the totalitarian control of reality. And because of that, total domination has to obliterate spontaneity and freedom everywhere. It needs to be, it needs to have the ambition of being total. And this totalitarian effort to transform a plurality of persons into a unity means that it seeks to fabricate something that does not exist, namely a kind of human species resembling other animal species whose only freedom would consist in behaving or in preserving the species. And so totalitarian aims to turn man into animals. It aims at the total loss of both external and internal freedom through this drive to total domination. So that's the basis. And, and it's important for us to understand that for a couple of reasons. One, it's very easy to say things like, oh, we're, we're, we're seeing totalitarianism today, or, you know, certain governments are totalitarian. And, and we have to be careful about that because Arendt means by totalitarian something really radical and specific. It's not tyranny. It's not fascism. It's not monarchy. It's not authoritarianism. It means a government that aims at a complete replacement of reality with a totalizing reality that eviscerates human freedom. And that's pretty rare. Uh, and she thinks it didn't emerge until the 20th century. She thinks there was never a government uh, that was totalitarian before 
1929, uh, Bolshevist Russia, and in 1933, Nazi Germany. And so does that mean that totalitarianism ended with Nazism, the end of Nazism in 1945, or that it ended with the end of Stalinism in 1953? It's a great question. And it's one that in 1967, in the prefaces that she writes, she raises this question again. And it's also one that she uh, addresses in the epilogue to the book, which she published in the second and further editions. And what she says is totalitarianism is rooted in the true problems of our time. What are the true problems of our time? She mentions them in in the beginning, in the, in the opening preface to the book. So uh, on page Roman numeral seven, she wants to say that under the most diverse conditions and disparate circumstances, we watch the development of the same phenomena, homelessness on an unprecedented scale, rootlessness to an unprecedented depth. Homelessness to an unprecedented scale, rootlessness to an unprecedented depth. Homelessness and rootlessness are the problems of our century. We create masses of people who are homeless and rootless. What does that mean? Well, it can mean literally homeless, people who are refugees. And the problem of refugees is going to be a huge problem of this book, something we're going to talk a lot about. And it can mean rootlessness, people who are uprooted from the countries or the local places where they come from. But it also means something deeper and and bigger, a kind of metaphysical homelessness and a metaphysical rootlessness, which uh, Arendt is going to collect under the term loneliness. Loneliness People have always been lonely, but usually we're lonely when we're sick or when we're older or when we're, you know, in a bad, in a bad place, you know, emotionally. But for RN, loneliness, homelessness, and rootlessness names the kind of meaninglessness of life. The fact that we've lost those things that give our lives meaning, things like religion or tradition or family. And we're increasingly living in a world in which all we have to give ourselves meaning is our job or our, you know, you know, that gives us some status, our income. And increasingly, um, uh, we don't even have those because of, you know, unemployment, mass unemployment has happened, obviously, during the Great Depression. And here we're talking about artificial intelligence today and the possibility of being replaced by machines. And so where do we find our our meaning or our sense? And that rootlessness, that homelessness, that isolation, that loneliness leads people to need to join movements to become that give them a sense of coherence and place in the world. And and those movements, because they become so important to the person's identity, replace religion or tradition or family as the core value out of identity of who we are. And so this deep modern need to belong, to be part of a coherent 
meaningful world ideology is for Arendt a problem of our time. It's not going away. And it's one of the reasons that for her, the possibility of totalitarianism is not going away. The point is that totalitarianism is one answer, one remedy, one solution to this modern problem of homelessness, rootlessness, and loneliness. It's a radical, original answer to the modern human condition. And it's one that many people find attractive. And because of that, she thinks totalitarianism is an ever-present possibility in our age. And yet that doesn't mean that every time that we have a, a tyranny or a fascist government or an authoritarian government, it's going to turn into totalitarianism. One of the difficult judgments to make in reading this book and that you're all going to have to grapple with as you read this book is that Arendt, who lived through, obviously, totalitarianism, she was a Jewish woman born uh, in 1906 in Germany, was imprisoned by the Nazis and, and then escaped and went to France and then eventually made her way to the United States. Arendt is deeply aware of the evils of totalitarianism. And the book is written still with that kind of anger, but also fear of it coming back. And so she wants to make a, a real distinction between totalitarianism and fascism. And while fascism is not something she likes, she doesn't think it's as bad as totalitarianism. Right? We'll talk more about this um, later in the book, but she doesn't think, you know, that 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 Mussolini was was Hitler or Stalin. And so there is a way in which the book has as its goal providing us with a kind of um, vaccine against totalitarianism. The vaccine is thinking. The vaccine is being free and holding on to freedom at all costs. And so there's a way in which, you know, she wants to say is what we really have to worry about is totalitarianism because that's a problem. And some of these other things, which are also bad, we should try and avoid, but don't confuse them with totalitarianism. Okay. The effort then is to do what she calls comprehension. It's to think, it's to understand, it's to reconcile. Um, these are all synonyms in her work, understanding, comprehension, reconciliation. In the preface to anti-Semitism, the first preface from 1967, she defines comprehension in her most in, in, a, in a quite uh, elaborate way. And she says, um, comprehension does not mean denying the outrageous. It doesn't mean that we, to comprehend anti-Semitism, to comprehend the Holocaust, cannot mean to deny the outrageousness of racism, of racist anti-Semitism. It cannot mean to deny the outrageousness of the Holocaust. And that means that we can't simply deduce something like the Holocaust from precedents that came before because it's something unique. And we can't explain it through analogies that remove the shock of experience. Instead, she says, comprehension means that we examine and bear the burden of events that are placed upon us. And as she says, both in that 
preface to anti-Semitism and also in the original preface from 1950, comprehension in the end means the unpremeditated, attentive facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. I'll, I'll say that again because I think it's, it's, this is her, this is her statement of what she's trying to do in the book. It's not an accident. She repeats it almost verbatim in these two different prefaces. Comprehension is the unpremeditated, attentive, facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. We can't premeditate it. We have to attentively look at it for what it is. This reality of the Holocaust, this reality of anti-Semitism, this reality of totalitarianism, this reality of total domination and the evisceration of freedom, we have to face it look up to it, be attentive to it, and resist it. How do you resist it? It's a great question. And I think the answer is, this book is her attempt to resist it. She thinks that by understanding it, by comprehending it, by thinking it through, we can begin to inoculate ourselves in some way from it. Because what what allows totalitarianism to happen is the evisceration of freedom, the evisceration of our spontaneity. And if we are, are able to understand that, we can resist it. We can think against it. We can hold on to what makes us human, our freedom in this other sense. And so that's the effort of the book. She also um, says that totalitarianism is destructive of man, right? It's destructive of the essence of man. The promise of totalitarianism, which she says late in the book on page 446, is the promise of a man-made fabrication of the paradise that they had longed for. It's the promise of a man-made fabrication of the paradise they had longed for. It's giving them what they want, which is a completely coherent, meaningful world in which they are significant and which they, their life means something. Nietzsche had once said that man can suffer all pain of life as long as he thinks his life has purpose and meaning. Metaphysical homelessness, rootlessness, and loneliness is the meaninglessness and purposelessness of life. And so what we seek is meaning. And um, totalitarian promises a man-made fabrication of a paradise of meaning. But in doing so, we destroy man because man is free. We destroy what she calls human freedom, and thus we destroy what she calls human dignity. We take away what she will name natality, the ability of man to start something new, to be a beginner, to be free, to be spontaneous. And that is the effort of totalitarianism. The book is called The Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, that doesn't mean she's trying to tell you what the cause is, right? There's no one cause of it. Uh, she's not giving here what we would think of as a social scientific approach, where you can sort of analyze something and find 
you know, where it started or the cause. She thinks there's multiple, what she'll call elements of totalitarianism. And she never fully identifies or says what the list of elements are. It's a list that grows and shrinks and, and we can come up with, you know, our own version. But some of the basic ones are anti-Semitism, racism, imperialism, power for power's sake, the demise or the disintegration of the nation state, terror, and ideology. Uh, these are, are some of the basic elements that we'll be addressing in our reading of the book. The book is divided into three parts, which were actually published originally as three separate books. The first book is anti-Semitism. The second book is imperialism. The third book is totalitarianism. And she says in the original preface, anti-Semitism, imperialism, totalitarianism, one after the other, one more brutally than the other, have demonstrated that human dignity needs a new guarantee, which can be found only in a new political principle in a new law on earth. In this triad of anti-Semitism, imperialism, and totalitarianism, what we see is the rise of total domination, the rise of, as I said, the attempt to destroy mankind, to destroy human dignity, to eviscerate human freedom. And what we need to develop or need to think is a new guarantee a new principle, a new law on earth. What is that new law going to be? What is it that can resist totalitarianism? At one point in, in the book, in chapter nine, um, she's going to suggest that it's going to be something like the right to have rights, which is a, a phrase that's become a catchphrase and not very well understood. But in the end, what it means is the right to be meaningful, the right to live in a political world in which what you say and do is heard and listened to and taken seriously. Thus, the right to live in a world in which you can act and speak in ways that people will listen and attend to what you do and you say, and thus that you matter. And this, for her, is what it means to be human, to matter, to be able to be meaningful, to be able to act and speak in ways that matter. And so the book is an attempt to understand how a political system, totalitarianism, emerged that seeks to eviscerate and destroy the meaningfulness of what it means to be human. What are the elements that allowed that to happen? And how did that happen? In the three prefaces that come after the original preface, uh, she gives in 1967 a quick, you know, intro to these three different books on anti-Semitism, imperialism, and totalitarianism. And it's written from the perspective of 1967. Um, so in anti-Semitism, she's really interested in writing in 1967 about one repeating one of the central theses of her argument, which is that anti-Semitism as it emerged in the 19th century is an ideology, is a racist ideology. 
and is not the same thing as a religious hatred of Jews. It's a secular 19th century ideology, not prejudice or not racism. I mean, I mean it's racism, not prejudice. It's not based in actual Jew hatred. It's based in something else. And she says that in order to understand what it's based in, we have to understand three facts. One is that the Jews didn't have a state since the destruction of the temple. So they were living always amidst other people. Two, because they were living amidst other people, they depended upon protection from Gentiles for their safety. And three, living in non-Jewish lands amidst other people, in order to remain Jewish, they had to separate themselves. They had to dissociate themselves. And the result of this, she says, is that once the rise of equality emerges as an ideal in the, in the Enlightenment, and once nation states with Jews in them begin to think of themselves as states with equal citizenship, assimilation becomes an option. The Jews could decide to assimilate and lose their Jewishness. And what we have to understand then, and this is, a, this is not an attempt to blame Jews at all, but it's an attempt to understand, to comprehend what happened. We have to understand that anti-Semitism then became in the self-interest of the Jews, right? Because anti-Semitism would be an argument for the Jews to remain separate, for them not to assimilate. This doesn't mean that the Jews brought about anti-Semitism. They did not. That's not her argument at all. It's not about blaming the victim. It's simply saying that if we want to understand racist ideology, we have to understand that racist ideology, anti-Semitism, but we could also include other racisms, emerges in the 19th centuries, primarily, and it's designed to resist assimilation. And there's crackpots on one side, but there's also a self-interest in people who want to remain Jews on the other, in allowing them to justify staying apart. In her discussion of imperialism, one of the things that she emphasized in this 1967 preface is that um, imperialism, again, is about expansion for expansion's sake. It's about power, and power has no limits. And so power seeks to extend itself across the globe. It's about the idea that imperialism was not a nationalist project. It was an internationalist project. And both Nazism and Bolshevism were internationalist ideologies. And she asks in 1967, are we returning to an imperialist age? And if we are, the two imperialist powers that she's looking at in 1967 are the United States and Russia, and potentially also China. And what she says is that the imperialism of the 1960s is not the same as the imperialism of the 19th century and the early 20th century, and yet it's not completely different from it, because just as the imperialism of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, early 20th century, was an expansionist, non-national project. 
So too, she says, do both Russia through international communism and the United States through a kind of liberal world order seek to expand power, not for racist reasons or class reasons necessarily, but to exert our power as a world power, as the great power of the world. And she raises the question of whether the United States is becoming an imperialist power. And she worries that it is. And her, her main activities of the United States that she focuses on are its use of foreign aid, which is basically money, lots of money, billions and billions of dollars given to countries that doesn't have much use, doesn't make the people's lives in those countries much better usually, but it increases our power. And we're willing to spend billions of dollars, not in our self-interest, not in making our lives better, not in making their lives better, but in increasing our power. And secondly, she says, the rise of the security state, the rise of an invisible government led by secret services, what we might call in today's parlance, the deep state. And Arendt uh, was, if nothing, if not a huge critic of, of this thing called the deep state. That's not to say that she and Mr. Trump uh, agree on everything. And I think that in his critique of the deep state is quite different than hers. She was, she would be very much in favor of a meaningful civil service that is neutral and professional. He's trying to destroy that. But she is worried about a, an invisible government, a secret government that she does think has as its interest expanding U.S. imperial power not protecting the interests of a constitutional republic. And understanding that difference uh, is going to be crucial to our reading of the book. Finally, um, the preface on totalitarianism is, is largely given over to, to looking at the sources that have come out about Russia and, and, and Germany and also China since she wrote the book in 1950. But there's one important part that I think we should at least focus on, where she says that we are handicapped today in our thinking about totalitarianism by our inheritance of an official counter-ideology of anti-communism, which also tends to become global in ambition. She's actually warning here about what might be called Cold War liberalism. She's warning here about those who would say that we should pursue a foreign policy of expansionary anti-communism to make ourselves do a great world power, which she says has the tends to become a global ideology. And we have to be worried about that. And we want to avoid embracing any kind of ideology, expansionist ideology, because those are the kind of things that can lead to totalitarianism. Uh, she then gives a list of some of the core elements of totalitarianism in this preface in 1967. She says we have to be careful about using overusing the word totalitarianism. We don't want to claim everyone is a totalitarian government. And she says there's a couple of different aspects of totalitarianism to pay attention to. One is the elimination of group solidarity. We want to get rid of all groups, whether it's academics or chess players or the bourgeoisie or the working class. We want to 
flatten all those distinctions because when people are members of groups, they're not part of a total government. They don't fully accept the totalizing propaganda and rhetoric of the totalitarian government. A second element is that facts that oppose the official fiction have to become non-facts. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about her understanding of the way totalitarianism creates a fictional world and attacks all facts that oppose it as non-facts. Another part is that totalitarian government creates multiple layers of bureaucracy that overlap and create parallel functions. And the reason they do that is they want to, because they're, they're, the, the totalitarianism, it doesn't actually have a stable goal. Its goal is constantly shifting. And if one bureaucracy becomes too ensconced in a goal, it actually becomes the kind of um, group solidarity that needs to be opposed. And so you need multiple governance bureaucracies so that the totalitarian movement can always pick the one that is most useful at a time. She talks about the rise of the police to replace the executive branch, the creation of objective enemies or criminals who have no committed no crime. So, for example, Jews uh, in Nazi Germany or bourgeoisie in Soviet Russia, they don't commit a crime. There's nothing they've done, but they become enemies of the people simply because of who they are. And finally, terror and terror is going to become a huge theme in her book. Okay. I'm going to stop there. Um, that's sort of a, a basic introduction, both to some of the major themes of the book and uh, these three prefaces that she wrote in 1967, as well as the original 1951 preface. I welcome your questions. John. Okay. Yeah. Uh Arndt's understanding of totalitarianism, I think, corresponds to Orwell's 1984, as opposed to Huxley's Brave New World. And uh, today, I think we're far more endangered by the Huxley version of totalitarianism. That is, um, uh, it lulls us to sleep. It, uh, freedom is no longer necessary because we are uh, lulled by the media and uh, the technology today, digital technology today is a far more dangerous uh, weapon in uh, the minds of totalitarian uh, rulers. It's also totalitarianism seems to me to uh, face a greater threat from uh, the corporate uh, uh, sector than the political sector. Uh, that is the plutocracy, the de facto plutocracy that we have now. And they use technology uh, uh, in kind of Neil Postman's sense of uh, amusing ourselves. Uh, public discourse in an age of uh, entertainment uh, becomes uh, uh, very difficult. Thanks, John. I mean, those are good points. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert in Huxley. I haven't read it in a while. I, I think you're right that uh, RN's is, is closer to, to Orwell. A big part of RN's um, thinking about totalitarianism, which we'll get to uh, in the parts of the book on totalitarianism, is about the attack on reality and the need 
of a totalitarian to create a fictional, coherent reality. And uh, certainly Orwell um, understood that brilliantly. And he and Arendt are, are very close in their thinking about that. Um, you know, on your point about the sort of way in which mass media uh, puts us to sleep and corporate media and corporate um, ideas put us to sleep. Um, you know, I think you're, I think you're generally right. And yet, um, you know, let me say uh, there have been uh, moments of sleepfulness and moments of wakefulness uh, in the last hundred years, right? When Arendt wrote her book Ar uh, on revolution in 1963, she was writing at the end of the 1950s and the last chapter of the book on the lost treasure of the revolution is a very cynical chapter about how, um, you know, the, uh, the old American idea of, of action and public action and public happiness and, um, and the experience of freedom and self-government has been abandoned by a corrupt citizenry that cares more about having two cars and a house and, you know, nice clothes and whatever. Um, a mere seven years later in 1970, uh, when she writes civil disobedience, uh, in the, in the wake of the rise of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the voting rights movement and others, she suddenly has a very different opinion, right? Which is that, um, civil disobedience is the modern institutional form of the town hall meeting and uh, and 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 self government and the American tradition of 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 and the experience of freedom and action. I, I think one can see the last thirty years uh, some similar, um, you know, waves. So in you know you had a time of of rising corporate and governmental power and government centralization, right? Huge government centralization in this country from the 1970s, 60s and 70s through, you know, the early 2000s. And then what happens? The rise of a massive anti-government right-wing freedom movement. Now, you know, some of us may not like it. Some of us may like it. I don't want to judge it. But a massive citizenry movement, the Tea Party leading into the MAGA thing, um, which has uh, mobilized you know, millions of Americans against what they see as an overly intrusive central government and corporate structure, exactly what you're talking about. And when that happened, what have you begun to see? The mobilization of, of people on the left that are suddenly, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or, um, you know, just generally, uh, you know, people trying to get into politics. Many of my students go into politics um, on the left. And so, what I'd say is I, I wouldn't be so cynical. I think what you, I think what we have to understand is it is human nature that at certain times, you know, we, we, we rather focus on our individual lives. And yet there is uh, at least somewhat alive um, a, a real sense and belief that one can make a difference in the world. And a lot of people are trying to do so. They just disagree. There's people on the right, there's people on the left, there's people in the middle and there's real action. And, and I think uh, it's important to credit that. And instead of my own view as a teacher of young people is to say, 
you know, let's not be, you know, if, if you're cynical and you're upset, there's a tradition of citizen action that you can get involved in. And, and, um, and that's, I think, a, a very hopeful way of, of reading these materials. Um, we're sort of out of time, and I see there's still a lot of questions. All I have to say is that we have almost five months of reading this book together, and we're going to have a lot of time to do so. Uh, and uh, all the issues that we're talking about today are going to keep coming back up. So um, I very much look forward to to getting your questions and, and getting them out. If you do have questions that are very that you really want to ask, you can email them to me, and I'll bring them up in future sessions. Um, we're not meeting next week because it's Rosh Hashanah, uh, and we will then reconvene on the twenty um, second, I believe, of September, and we'll be reading uh, the, the first chapter of the book Anti-Semitism. It's a short chapter, but a very, very rich and interesting one. So um, I hope you get to pay attention to it. I hope you enjoy reading Hannah Arendt and um, we'll see you in two weeks. Have a very happy holiday if you celebrate. Gracias, Professor Roger. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.